I was at the lowest point of my life and I had that realization that I needed to change. I needed to change my behaviors. I needed to change the style of leadership that I was on and I needed to change for the better, not just for myself, but for the company and the team. And so I began a journey of striving to become a empathetic, vulnerable and trusting leader that puts the needs of others before myself and create a circle of safety where people are empowered to learn make mistakes, forgive one another, uh, and thereby create an environment of resilience and belonging. And I'm still on this journey because this journey is a journey with no destination. It's a permanent state of transformation. And as a result, our company uh, went from barely surviving to thriving. And that kind of gave birth to love as a business strategy. Welcome to CEO on the Go, the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm Gail Lance, and I'm here to help you think differently, solve big problems, and inspire change. It's tough to do on your own and even with a team, but it is possible. So let's get started. Welcome to this special episode. This is such an exceptional episode today. I'm so excited to to share it with you. I've done over 150 episodes, and this is one that I think will really stand out, and I think you'll see why. If you've followed this podcast for a while, you know I really like bringing on CEOs and senior executives who can share real-life experiences, how they've succeeded, how they've failed, and lessons learned along the way. Most of the people I speak with do have some level of self-awareness, or they wouldn't even be in the top-level roles that they're currently in. But it's rare that I come across a CEO who has such a high level of self-awareness and who's done such incredible introspective work to go from the pinnacle of success to the brink of destruction and back. I actually have two guests today. One is Mohammed Anwar. Mohammed, also known as Mo, is the youngest of five children and was born and raised in Saudi Arabia to Indian parents from Bengaluru. He graduated from the University of Houston with a BS in computer science and started Softway at the age of 20, where he still serves as the president and CEO. He's also the co-founder of Culture Plus, a culture-as-a-service company and wholly-owned subsidiary of Softway. Muhammad lives in Sugarland, Texas, with his amazing wife, Yulia, a five-time Olympic medalist in diving from Russia, and his two beautiful children. In his spare time, he enjoys fitness, watching college sports, and butchering American idioms. Also joining the conversation is Frank Dana. Frank is director of culture and Seneca. He's the oldest of six children, can often be found perfecting the art of brewing, drinking and sharing coffee with friends and family. Frank is an entrepreneur at heart, having successfully sold his first startup at age 25. Frank is a pop culture connoisseur, world traveler, and collector of limited edition posters. In his spare time, he writes children's books, makes silly videos, and enjoys fitness. Frank lives in Houston, Texas with his gorgeous wife, Megan, and two awesome children. Mohammed and Frank are also co-authors of the book, Love as a Business Strategy, along with two other co-authors. So they're four all together. As Frank explained, it's a bit unusual that four guys wrote a book about love 
inspired by one of the most masculine sports. This is one of those episodes that I wish we did have on video. Maybe there's some way I can capture some clips because they bring a great expression and humor to our conversation. Um, this episode is especially valuable because you'll not only hear from Muhammad as the CEO who experienced transformation himself, but also from Frank as someone who witnessed the whole process. And by the way, I learned after the podcast that Frank is among the 68% of the team that still exists today, going back 10 years. So that speaks a lot about their ability to retain key talent. I also love that Muhammad described himself as Mo 1.0, who's now upgraded. I think that's a great challenge for all of us to think about as well. How will you upgrade yourself as an operating system? And I can tell you, love is the answer. But I'll let Muhammad and Frank explain. Enjoy our conversation. Mohammed and Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Gail. Gail, this is awesome. We're very excited. I've been so eager to speak with you ever since we first met, and I learned more about your book and the uh, the message that you have to share. Uh, Muhammad, I know we haven't uh, known each other that long. You seem like a really nice guy, but some of how the book has portrayed you, I think, might pose some questions. And I would love to hear more about your story, some of your learnings as a CEO, growing a business, um, the turning point that you reached to really put you on a different path and, and hearing firsthand from you is so valuable. So again, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, sharing your wisdom. So tell me a little bit about how all of this started. So I, I began my business when I was 20 years old, a software technology firm, uh, 20 years old while I was still pursuing my computer science degree. And within 10 years of uh, running the business, you know, I had over 300 employees and I was driving my fancy car, um, flying planes across Texas. And I believed I had hit the pinnacle of success and I'm like 30 something years old. And I believed I was living the American dream. But the reality was that our business was just a couple of years after reaching all of that success, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. Our company was near, oh, had almost had to shut down. And um, thankfully, during the course of that time, I had a moment of deep introspection where I recognized that this wasn't because of the market condition. This wasn't because of the clients or our team. It was, in fact, my fault. As a CEO, I was incredibly selfish, I was greedy, and I had created this environment of fear because I think I was power drunk, and I believed that it was my way or the highway, and people had stopped putting their heart and passion into what they were doing, and they weren't showing up to the workplace to do the best work of their lives. In fact, they were just showing up to make a paycheck and do the minimal work that they could. Um, and as a result of that, our company was almost near destruction. Um, but thankfully, because of that realization, which I happened to have from a football game that I attended after laying off almost 100 employees just two weeks prior, uh, visiting that football game for my alma mater at University of Houston and witnessing a comeback victory in the fourth quarter, um, you know, I was extremely excited and wanted to not give up. And I wanted to go fight for softball, like how the team had fought to overcome a deficit of 20 points. And uh, following that weekend, uh, I watched the press conference of then rookie head coach Tom Herman. And it's what he said that really changed the course of my life. He said it was love that had helped them 
to win that night, that had helped them to be resilient and come back and win that night. And he began to expand and say that it's not the love you broke kind of love, but genuine, you have my heart in your hand kind of love. And that's how you not only win games like Saturday night, but that's how you win championships. And as he began to expand and continue to speak about how those football players went on the field that night, not to play for themselves, but play for the brothers next to them. I was just overwhelmed with all of these questions that were going through my mind at the very moment. Ask, And I started to ask myself, do I love my team? Do I care for my team? The way Coach Herman is describing and the resounding answer that just kept coming back was no, I didn't. I didn't care for them. I didn't love them the way Coach Herman was describing how his team loved one another. And since I was so, I was really in a very tight spot with our situation and I was at the lowest point of my life and I had that realization that I needed to change. I needed to change my behaviors. I needed to change the style of leadership that I was on and I needed to change for the better, not just for myself, but for the company and the team. And so I began a journey of striving to become an empathetic, vulnerable, and trusting leader that puts the needs of others before myself and create a circle of safety where people are empowered to learn, make mistakes, forgive one another, uh, and thereby create an environment of resilience and belonging. And I'm still on this journey because this journey is a journey with no destination. It's a permanent state of transformation. And as a result, our company uh, went from barely surviving to thriving, and that kind of gave birth to love as a business strategy. So that's kind of our journey. Oh, my goodness. That, what an epiphany. Um, I was curious to know what the initial response was to, to the people that you lead when they began to see that you had this epiphany. Were they shocked? Did they like like think, where did he go? What happened to him? Yeah. Gail, here's, here's what happened. So you know, the way the timeline works is two weeks before this, this football game, we had just laid off a third of our workforce. The company was in dire straits. And Muhammad, after this, um, this press conference with coach Tom Herman, called the whole company together, US and India. And we thought we were done. We were like, this must be it. We must be closing our doors. We're packing up. We're moving on. And he walked in the room. And the first thing he said was, just wanted to tell you all that I love you. And we were like, who replaced Muhammad with some other Muhammad? Right. You know, we had no idea what was going on because again, Muhammad's misbehavior and the the culture that he had created was was toxic. Like, and then he came in and was like, Hey, I love all of you. We're gonna, we're gonna rally together, we're gonna make this happen, we're gonna come back and we're gonna win. Right. And it was this amazing rallying cry, but at the same time, I don't think anyone really believed what he was saying. And that happens often when a leader goes through this moment of excitement or they read a book or see a quote or are scrolling through LinkedIn. They're like, that was a great video I just watched. I'm going to change my whole life now. I've seen and leaders do that. Yeah. <laughs> some people call it flavor of the week. Some people call mm -hmm. it flavor of the month. What we started to see from Muhammad was a consistent introspective journey of him choosing different behaviors over the course of many months and years. And it started with us being very skeptical, myself included, even though I'd known Muhammad for years before that. And what we began to experience was not the words, because he started with words, but then he followed it up with actions. And those actions began to have a ripple effect that actually built over time. And 
that kind of momentum that built as a result of Muhammad acting and behaving in these ways created a change inside of our organization where other people began to buy into the reality of this is how we should operate now without Muhammad even telling us, hey, this is what I'm doing. Now, eventually, after a few years, we began to integrate this type of approach into the way we hire, into the way we build our teams, into the way we integrate culture. But for quite a while, it was Muhammad's journey alone to prove to himself and to us that he was capable of change. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you give a specific example of one way in which you've integrated that in your culture, like in your hiring practice or development or day to day? I'll say something personally for myself. Yeah, because my wife asked me, you know, after we went through this downturn and we we ended up having to make significant um I, I don't really call them sacrifices, but we started to have to like, hey, let's 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 bunker down, let's hunker down and and you know get into the long haul of of trying to rebuild this company. Uh and my wife was like, why didn't you just leave? Like, why didn't you just take all these offers that are coming from you? You were forwarding offers from other companies to Muhammad, um, t- telling him, I'm not leaving, I'm not going anywhere, I'm here with you. True story. Um and it's because one one day Muhammad wrote me a handwritten note after a significant period of intense work, um, and inside of the note was I think it was like a hundred dollars, and the hundred dollars wasn't for me. It was for me to take my family out and do something with them because he was thinking about them and the impact that my work and contribution was making, and the, to the detriment of like my family time. And I later learned that that money wasn't from the company; it was from his bank account even though he hadn't taken a paycheck for eight months. And so I'm, I'm hearing these, these I'm, I'm experiencing this level of sacrifice and this level of care that I had never seen from him before. And it was in that moment that I was like, this is where I want to be. I want to fight for this culture. I want to fight for Muhammad. But in regards to the way we, we began to experience onboarding and even looking for team members, I mean, everything changed. And, you know, it's, it all started with recognizing how our team members wanted to be experienced and how they showed up and feeling welcomed into the environment. Um, because our previous onboarding, there was no plan, right, Mo? There was just like, you show up and we hope you have a great first day, question mark. <laughs> there was luck. a plan, but that <laughs> we really didn't follow through. But also the plan and the process was ineffective at all. It was borrowed from other corporate environments and it was it wasn't considering the person that was being hired it was considering the company's needs and so it was very one-sided um yeah i i personally didn't have to go through that onboarding process but i i've only heard uh one of our co-authors joined our company two weeks before the layoffs who is uh, chris petrie and uh uh, when he showed up to work, I had forgotten that it was his first day and I was his reporting manager. And I'm like, I don't have time for you. I apologize. Go talk to HR. So that's kind of the onboarding experience Chris had. So he came in and he was like, just, you know, after we started a journey, he was like, my first day was garbage. It yeah. was horrible. Garbage. One garbage. out of 10, garbage. he would not recommend. And he was like, "I we have to change this, Muhammad. It was it, my first day sucked. And I'm like, okay, then go do, let's, let's do go it. Do go, it. Do yeah. what, go do whatever you have to do. And he changed the whole system. He made it about considering the person, how we interview, how we bring them on board. We started hiring them on Fridays instead of starting them on Monday. Like they would start on Fridays and that's the day everybody's more happy. <laughs> yeah. Nicer. People, yeah. Nicer. Yeah, introduce them in the company stand up. 
have lunch meeting with the team on, you know, like it was, it just, we just changed the whole dynamic of how people got onboarded, how people got recruited. And it was all, it was all like, it wasn't like I had this, like, this is how we're going to do it. Like, I really didn't know how to do it. So the other others around me figured out how to do it better. Yeah, because because you, you're you're saying it in a way that's oh yeah, we just changed this and that. And I know you didn't have a blueprint. So no. was it trial and error? Was it just yeah. going by instinct? Yeah. Um, did you have to develop new skills, Mahaban, in your role that you hadn't used before? What what was that like? Oh, Something new that you had to try or. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> or just one at least. <laughs> it was it was hard uh, and it's still hard to be honest, but I think um, the way I see it is I had to change my, if I was a computer and I had to change my operating system, <laughs> I had to upgrade my operating system. I was a Mo 1.0. I think now people say I'm in a Mo 3.1.2.1. I don't yeah, know. 3.1.2.1. Yeah. We're good. Uh, that's kind of the operating system upgrades I've had. So, which means I have to learn to process information differently. I have to learn to respond instead of react. When people got me bad news, for example, just to give you context, if Frank came and said, first of all, if he had the courage to even come and say, Mohammed, we have a problem with our project. Can you help me? I would go in on Frank and be like, why is there a problem? What the hell did you do to cause that problem? Why didn't you take care of it? Right? Like that was my Mo 1.0. Uh, Mo 3.1.2.1 is now more like, all right, Frank, good news is that we didn't lose $10,000. We just lost $5,000. So tell me, how do you think this came about happening? What can I do to help you? Where do you need me to you know, support you? Would you like me to talk to the customer? Or do I need to give you more resources or talent to help you? That's the difference. Like I just had to change the way I, like I, my previous, previous zones, I would react. I would assume bad intent. I would blame Frank. The new version, I have to learn to assume good intent, not react, but respond and be solution oriented and help Frank through the challenges that he's facing. So it's a drastic change. And we're talking like, that times a hundred. Um, but it wasn't like overnight. It wasn't like, no, you know, I, I wouldn't just, expect it to be. Yeah. So it's almost it like me ca- a long catching time. yourself, becoming, increasing oh, yeah. your self-awareness was key. Absolutely. That is yeah. correct. Spot and on. then catching All about yourself. self-awareness. Yeah. 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 So speak more, Frank, I'm curious, because I know culture is is an area that you're really uh, fixated on. How do you integrate um, love like for other companies or other CEOs that are listening in, leaders that say, well, love seems kind of soft, you know, as a as a business strategy, especially. Usually when you think about strategy, that's a more cerebral kind of intellectual exercise. So I'd love to know more about how you're developing your culture and strategy to to do even more of what you've already talked about. What are some tips or some ideas for people that think this is something that we need to be considering? Yeah. So, you know, we wrote a book called Love as a Business Strategy very intentionally because these we're putting words um, together to form a statement that uh, is confusing to a lot of people. So when we say love as a business strategy, we're not talking about like a Hallmark rom-com when when your hot best friend is your soulmate and you don't realize it till two hours into the movie. Uh, We're not talking about that. Um, What we're talking about is putting people at the center of business decisions. And, you know, one of the things that when we define love as a business strategy, we talk about it as doing things out of care for others. 
And when you hear the word love, you think soft, you hear doormat, right? Like, oh, well, if I'm going to showcase love to people, what I'm going to get in return is being trampled on by people that'll take advantage of it. But in reality, when you truly embrace love as a business strategy, you actually embrace hard conversations. You can have more honest discussions that get you to your goals faster because you have a relationship with someone where you can be direct and they know that that conversation is coming from a place of love. It also means building processes, tools, and policies that align people with profit. And that's a, a thing that I think people need to consider is love as a business strategy is simply a, a focused effort on saying, where do our people need to matter more and how can we build this up for them? And at first, it was a little bit challenging for us because a few months after our layoffs and the the football game and Muhammad coming in and saying, I love all of you. And we're all like, what's happening? <laughs> we got a chance to go and see Twitter, Uber, and Facebook in the same day in Silicon Valley. And that was 2016. This was the heyday of the ultimate perks in the office. So we walk in and they've got like goat yoga. They've got, you know, like ice cream parlors and arcades, unlimited guac on Thursdays, all of this insane stuff around the, you know, gourmet chefs cooking five course meals. And we're like, we're so broke, we can't do any of this. So how are we going to build a great culture if we can't afford to do any of this goat yoga? But in reality, what we started to recognize that culture is nothing more than how we behave. It's the emotional environment we create. Those things that people see as like, and even communicate from an HR side of like, if you join our company, you'll have unlimited PTO. Well, that's a perk. That's not your culture, right? Your culture is how you treat each other, whether that's a toxic environment or a supportive environment. It's the way we speak to each other in meetings, the way we discuss and engage with each other, it's the it's our openness uh, towards each other, right? It's that that is what culture is. And so we encourage people to recognize that culture is nothing more than the emotional environment that we create. And if that is true, then we need to develop the right set of behaviors to create that emotional culture where people feel cared for, respected, trusted. Um, all of those things need to be visible and showcased by leadership before they can be emulated by teams. Uh, and that was our big aha moment. It was like, okay, culture is nothing more than behaviors. Then what are the types of behaviors we need to be showcasing to people to really begin to build this journey and to rebuild our organization? Yeah. I What I especially appreciate about your message is that you're modeling that it is important to start at the top. You can't uh, you know, uh, delegate cultural shift to HR or culture team, or innovation team, whatever you want to call it, like, let's, let's hand this off. And this is a group that's just going to work on culture or fix culture or create culture. It really does have to start and be modeled at the very top, which it sounds like you're doing so beautifully now, Muhammad. So keep it up. <laughs> that's a good. You're on a great trajectory. And uh, I think really inspiring to people who might know that something needs to change. And they're, they're looking on the outside for the situation to change or the market to change or competition. And if they start within, then that's when they will see true change happen. So I know it's been a couple of years now since your book came out. And I was curious to know if there's any new lesson in particular that wasn't included or, or a lesson that you would like to reiterate um, that came from the book since you've had some experience now, since you've gotten the initial message out from either of you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of the things, uh, the book came out right at COVID time, like 2021, April, like we actually, 
uh, we thought there was a downtime for us. So we're going to write a book, but we realized we actually got busier in COVID, but we still managed to write a book by putting in a lot of nights and weekends uh, and, and doing it with the four of us was actually exciting and supportive. But um, some of the lessons that we're learning that we continue to learn through our journey, because we've managed to still keep our business, we've managed to still keep our technology and communication services side of software operational. And we've done that intentionally because we want to be in the thick and thin of running a business, being leaders, uh, operating just like other businessmen, so that when we do go to leaders and try to help consult them and help guide them on how to become leaders who lead with love, we don't want to be looking outside in as consultants or academics with research, just trying to tell people what to do, but we want to be in it with them and experience the same challenges they're going through. So what we've been experiencing recently is a whole hybrid workforce, the remote workforce, which all of a sudden the whole world, you know, went into the whole great resignation, the great reshuffle, whatever you want to call it, right? We're, we're going through it too. So through the course of these just past two years, we've been learning a lot about how to create culture intentionally in a remote work environment, because a lot of leaders come to us and say, yeah, but you know, it would have been so much easier if we're just all in the office. And so how do I, how do I build culture if we're all always on zoom and people have their cameras off and all of those kind of questions come up and we've been going through that as well. And so I would say a big takeaway that probably a lot of your audiences are asking is that, yeah, how do you do it in the remote world? And the answer is you have to be intentional. We have become very accustomed to just hopping onto meetings and hopping off and become efficient. And we've lost sight of what is effectiveness and how efficiency is not equate to effectiveness. In order for us to be effective and efficient, we have to be intentional about our interactions, about our relationships, about checking in on people, about not being on the agenda always, but starting off with just having the small talk, getting to know what's going on in Frank's world. Frank, how are you doing? What's really going on? How was your weekend? Anything you want to share? Um, being willing to not always stick to that agenda and just get in and get out. And instead being intentional about taking time to just hang out and create those uh, water cooler moments that we don't have water coolers to go and have those moments by anymore. But doing that in the virtual capacity is going to be crucial if you want to continue to build relationships and create that environment where people feel safe, included, valued, respected, and they're able to bring themselves to the remote meetings, turn their cameras on, not by force, because, but because they want to be seen. Um, and all of that takes uh, effort, uh, you know, and we have a saying, choose your heart, right? Which is, it's uh, it's hard to save money, but it's also, it's harder to be broke. Similarly with culture, um, you know, this work takes, it's hard work. It's gonna take effort by leaders to put in this thing. So you could choose your heart. You could either put in the hard work and create an inclusive environment and a cultural space for your employees, or, you know, go through the hardships when your people start quitting and resigning and leaving. And that's also hard work. That's, that's choose your heart. So we try to push leaders to recognize that anytime you're in this work of culture and you remote environment is harder, but choose your heart. You either put in the effort or lose all your talented people. Yeah. It's funny when you said that, I initially thought you were saying choose your heart. 
You oh, know, like look. <laughs> so I guess you need both, right? So, yes, that's a good one too. <laughs> yeah, Frank, what were you going to say? You know, I've, something that we have begun to experience, and you know, this this phrase that we started using came just after the book was published. So I was like, God, a book too. You know what I'm saying? We're gonna have to, <laughs> um, but what we call it, we call it honesty over harmony. And it's very, very important that as you begin to build this culture of love, that what you're having are honest conversations over those harmonious conversations. And so what I mean by harmonious is when people are all being sort of nice and agreeable, but the agreeable layer is fake. And it's essentially just let's create a false sense of harmony, even though I very strongly disagree with this perspective. I have feedback. I have thoughts. I want to say something, but I can't. I don't have the ability to speak up. That harmony is ruining businesses because it's not real harmony. And so honesty, honesty is leaning into those tougher conversations and you know, making sure that you're able to, to provide that type of feedback or, or say to the team, hey guys. I feel like we're all being kind of harmonious right now. Can we be a little bit more honest? And that does provide a, 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 a call kind of it a, out yeah. a safer space yeah. to say, here we go. Um, honesty is actually required to build real harmony. You know, so if if someone is singing flat in Beyonce's backup singer team, Beyonce is not going to be like, hey, I'm just going to, you know, if you're not harmonizing, I'm going to be honest and let you know. And so you have to be willing to create those intentional moments of honesty. And that is even more true in a kind of mixed remote hybrid world where even though we can see facial expressions, we can just as easily turn off that camera and and disengage, right? And so that creates an interesting and unique challenge. But we've been using the term honesty over harmony constantly as a as a culture check for us to be able to move forward. Yeah. And we believe that love like the love the way we describe it is what creates these environments of honesty or harmony where people are able to come forth and be honest and speak the truth to power or speak honestly with their teammates to give them feedback but obviously it gives us the ability to do it without being jerks about it and not being mean-spirited about it but also from the receiving end if i'm going to give honest feedback to frank He's definitely going to consider my honesty, even if it stings. He's going to know that Muhammad's intent is that he loves me. So when he's giving me this feedback, he really cares about my well-being, my growth. So I'm going to process this. I'm going to take this feedback. And for that, you do have to have an environmental culture of love. And I, I think a lot of the times people confuse love with being nice. Um, and it's it's not the same. We believe in tough love. And that's how you are able to have those tough conversations and not be worried about the reactions. Uh, and and also, I just recently learned of the saying, and so this is not the flavor of the week, Frank. I'm going to adopt this, but <laughs> you know, honesty honesty without kindness is brutality, but kindness without honesty is manipulation. And I think the world is like our, our corporate world is so afraid of those conflicts and you know because they don't have trust they don't have relationships that they're trying to be kind because they want to be nice but it's actually nice nasty you're manipulating people by not being honest and so we want to we want to help the corporate world and leaders and people inside of those corporations understand that you know you can be kind and honest you don't have to be one or the other and uh, and you do that through a culture of love yeah. 
Wonderful. Well, I know we're kind of reaching the end of our time, but I was curious to know, um, first of all, what what you all are most looking forward to now. You know, you've gained so much insight, you've transformed your organization, and you're continuing to do so. Is there anything on the horizon that you're most excited about? Mohammed, I'll start with you, and then I'll go to Frank, just through both of your lenses in terms of what what's next. Yeah. Yeah, I, I personally think we're amidst a workplace revolution. We are going through that revolution right now. And so what I'm most excited about is the fact that uh, COVID played a catalyst in you know really disrupting the workplace and what we knew about corporate structures and command and control and, and people and what they want and desire. Um, so what I'm most excited about is coming on the other side of this revolution and being a part of that journey and hopefully creating a movement to bring back humanity to the workplace. And to do that through love is what I'm most excited about. We have a big vision. We believe that um, by bringing back humanity to the workplace, maybe, maybe as a result of that, we will be a big part of maybe changing the world because corporate world pretty much drives this earth uh, and the world. And maybe we can save the planet as a result. Maybe we can make you know, make changes to the world by first focusing on the corporate workplace where we spend more awake hours uh, at with our coworkers than we do with our own families and kids. And so if we can create an environment where we can change people's mindsets, their behaviors and how they think of one another, and we can probably make a difference to the world. So that's what I'm most excited about. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but... Oh, you're clearly I'm... a catalyst to, <laughs> yeah, to move that forward. Frank, what, what about you? What are your thoughts on that? Muhammad went global. So I'm going to go... He went so macro, like, like universe, that I'm going to go micro. And I'm going to say what I'm most looking forward to from inside of our organization um, is the the ability for us to continue to redefine ourselves and to build this culture of experimentation as we move forward. Because I think that is the thing that's going to continue to help us become the catalyst to help bring humanity back to the workplace. So I'm excited about the fact that our our team is, is aligned on this vision. And from a technology side, a communication side, a culture side, all the different components of our organization, we're all very focused on getting there, but that doesn't mean we're losing sight of an innovation and opportunities to experiment and grow and redefine ourselves as we move forward. So I'm excited because we take chances and those chances pay off. And if it fails, we learn from it. But I think our ability to be able to move and pivot in that space is exciting to me because I think we'll get to that vision faster. Yeah. Wonderful. And it's so awesome that you all have resources to support other leaders and organizations that want to do the same. So tell people the best way to to reach out to you or to learn more about the work that you're doing. So I'll go ahead and let you know that we're both on LinkedIn. We're pretty active on LinkedIn, although Muhammad is, is much more active than me, and that's fine. Um, and we, we also have um, some interesting experiments that we've been doing recently, and I'll share it here on the podcast, is we have a leadership experience, a kind of a leadership summit that we've we're hosting, and we usually host it for individual organizations, like like intact leadership teams. Uh, we've taken over 2,500 leaders across 60 countries uh, or from 60 different countries through this these experiences over the, the course of the past several years. But now we've begun to experiment with an open seating concept. We've invited individuals from different organizations to come and join us. And if you follow us on LinkedIn, uh, you will definitely see when those next dates are for those open sessions. If you're interested in 
doing a deeper dive into the work that we're doing and experiencing our approach to leadership development based on our book and our journey thus far. Um, and so I don't want to give any dates right now because I want to make sure this is date agnostic based on when people listen to it. But if you follow us uh, on LinkedIn, uh, I think that would be a great way to stay connected to the work that we're doing at Softway uh, and the work that we're doing uh, with the Culture Plus um, tag, essentially, which is our our culture side of Softway. Okay, great. And we'll include links in the show notes to to the resources and websites that you mentioned. Anything to add, Mohammed? No, uh, I would just say the the experience that Frank is mentioning is called Seneca Leaders, and it's an experience where we help leaders build that self awareness uh, about their behaviors and and give them the tools to how to lead with love. And as Frank mentioned, we've taken over twenty five hundred leaders through this program, and it's. Uh, it's been phenomenal to see how leaders have been able to go back and transform their own organizations. And uh, we have other tools to measure culture. We believe we have the first tool in the marketplace that allows you to measure culture and uh, cultural experiences inside of organizations. So we have quite a bit of those uh, tools and resources. And if you're interested in the Seneca Leaders program for your organization or attend the public training option, you can go to SenecaLeaders.com. And it's spelled S-E-N-E-C-A leaders.com. Okay, great. And before I let you go, I would love to hear a tip or word of encouragement. Let's assume that people have been listening. They're inspired by what you say, maybe overwhelmed or thinking, okay, we really do need to to make some serious change here. They know that it's up to them to do it. What, what advice or tip would you offer for those that are really, uh, where your message is really resonating and they want to just take the first step or make sure they're doing things in the best way? Yeah, I can start. You can close this out, Mo. My, my one tip is your behavior as a leader has an impact on people, has an impact on the folks that you're leading. And that behavior, whether good or bad, is creating the culture of your organization. My tip would be if you're inspired to lead with love and you're asking yourself, hey, how do I love my team all of a sudden? <laughs> how do I like, and that was something I went through personally and it took me a while to figure this out, but I struggled to love my team because I was always focused on their weakness. And so my tip would be uh, look for the goodness in your team while looking for the weakness within yourself. And that would be my tip is to allow you to do that because when you look for the goodness in your team, you will find it in your heart to love your teammates versus if you're always focused on their mistakes, their bad qualities, you will not find a way to love them. So that would be my encouragement and tip of the day. <laughs> good, good. Perfect note to end on. Well, I can't thank you enough. I think this has been a, a really powerful conversation, a little different conversation compared to many I've had on this podcast. So I so appreciate it. Uh, so thank you both, Mohammed and Frank, for joining me today. I hope to have further conversations down the road, but it's it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Gil. Yeah. Yeah. And for everyone else listening in, I hope you have a great rest of the week doing the work that matters to you. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, be sure to share this episode with someone else who might benefit or leave a review. You can join my email list by going to workmatters.com so you don't miss an episode. And there you can learn more about ways we serve mission-driven leaders like you. If there's a challenge you want to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, keep growing as a leader, inspiring change, and doing the work 
that matters to you.